UNFTR. In our nation's capital, an expert in the field of health and medical insurance, director of insurance for Universal Pictures Company, Benjamin Lorber, lays before the House Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce a comprehensive, far-reaching program of health insurance and medical services for all Americans. This bill serves the public interest. It, it involves the government because it involves the public welfare. The Constitution of the United States did not make the President or the Congress powerless. It gave them definite responsibilities to advance the general welfare. And that is what we're attempting to do. But here in America, in the wealthiest nation on Earth, no illness or accident should lead to any family's financial ruin. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you will be able to keep your health care plan, period. Our legislative work starts with repealing and replacing Obamacare. And a Medicare for all single-payer bill will eventually prevail is that that will be and is the only mechanism we have to provide comprehensive, high-quality health care to all of our people in a cost-effective way. Welcome back to another season of Unfucking the Republic. It's good to be back. Why are you going into season? You were on vacation. Just say, hi, I'm back from vacation. Why I left Manny and 99 behind to work their asses off. Are you done? Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. We'll traverse this audio journey together to upend conventional wisdom, blow up narratives on the left, right, and middle, and use magical devices like facts, logic, and reason to explain how exactly we arrived in Bizarro America, the funhouse mirror version of what was originally intended. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by our Unfucking Overcaffeinated members, W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Brian F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Fringe benefit. That's how healthcare came to be regarded in the United States. Lumped in with meal perks, an extra day off, maybe a brand spanking new company car. The very idea that healthcare is even associated with employment should be problematic enough let alone the fact that it's considered a fringe benefit instead of a natural right. We're going to do a level-setting show this week, then a follow-up episode next week that drills deeper into the problematic parts of the ACA. It's not going to be a series per se, but the topic is just so overwhelming that it would be an exercise in absurdity to try and unfuck the entire thing in one episode or a series. For God's sakes, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a fool, man! So this is one of those baseline apps that helps us establish a foundation for related features down the road, an understanding of the moving parts, and shared language for the challenges that we face. But it's time to begin in earnest, and some of the measures incorporated into the Inflation Reduction Act offer a reasonable jumping off point for us to enter the fray. I don't think there are any huge aha moments that will knock you on your ass. But that said, it was an important exercise personally because it forced me to think about the moving parts of the healthcare industry more critically. 
It's also one of the most requested topics by our audience. In fact, for this episode, most of the resources that I'm relying on came from listeners. In terms of level setting, I actually want to begin with a handful of requests to help frame the inquiry. These questions helped organize my path as I plotted through some insightful books and articles, demonstrating once again that this community is bright and curious and our process is truly collaborative. For example, here's some questions posed by unfucker Gene S. a while back. Why is healthcare so expensive and complicated? Why does this country spend the most for poor outcomes relative to other countries? And perhaps the most impossible yet intriguing question, isn't it immoral to make a profit off of sick people? James M., a listener who has spent more than 30 years in healthcare, suggested that we break up the industry into several topics, saying, quote, the U.S. does not have a health system. It has multiple organizations seeking to maintain their mission by being profitable or maintaining their bond rating and having a surplus, end quote. One of the crucial resources I dug into for this, and undoubtedly for every future episode, is one that James recommended titled The Social Transformation of American Medicine by Paul Starr. If you're in the field, my guess is you already know of it. It came out a few decades ago, but it was a Pulitzer Prize-winning book that remains relevant to this day, and it contains updates to the original. James suggested that we examine the disparate distribution of care, how professionals are trained, and the differences between employer-funded insurance and the great society programs that care for the aged and indigent. And we'll hit on some of these. He then recommended that we separate Big Pharma from the discussion to set it on its own, specifically as it related to the role of pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs. And on this, I must profess a little professional jealousy. One of the very first folders that I created for UNFTR was titled PBMs. See, one of my best friends who worked in the industry had given me chapter and verse on these companies and their existence is beyond scandalous. And strangely, there's precious little written about their role in the world, which makes it hard to research, but very tantalizing to cover. But I kept kicking that can down the road. So while I was on vacation, I revived my notes and figured maybe this was a good place to start. Then I opened up my pod app and went to one of my favorite pods called Congressional Dish by Jennifer Briney, only to find that she did a remarkable episode on PBMs in July. So my hat's off on this one. The upside to my being late to the dance on this one is that I now have a phenomenal resource to pull from when we finally do get to Big Pharma. So check it out when you have a chance. It's episode 255, and it's extremely well done, as are all of her shows, and we'll link it in show notes. Now, Phil S. sent a detailed email to us a while back, and I have to give him props for the thought that went into it. Phil segmented the topic into six distinct categories. One, our disproportionate outcomes as it relates to wealth, ethnicity, and disability. Two, the uniqueness of our employer-based insurance system. Three, the politics of healthcare. Four, the quote, fallacies, perverse incentives, and opportunities for exploitative financial fuckery that would make Milton Friedman harder than Matt Gates at a quinceanera, end quote. Unfuckers really do know how to get to my heart. Among the examples he offers is, quote, inelasticity of demand among patients, a complete lack of price transparency reinforced by mysterious charge master lists, costs distorted by insurance companies, and asymmetrical power dynamics often exacerbated by the racial and gender dynamics that are too often present, end quote. Five, consolidation and corporatization in medicine to maximize profits at the expense of quality, personalization, and compassion of care. And six, a dysfunctional system with no incentive 
to keep people well. And there's one more, unfucker Sam E, who offered a basic and biting truth. We need to improve the system to have more people not in need of healthcare than in need of it. Quote, in our supposed free market model, healthcare is a self-actualizing industry, end quote. Sam sent in a very long and well-reasoned letter that ends with another doozy. How can we transform the system to focus our efforts on quality of life over length of life? That's just a sampling of the requests and direction that we've received regarding healthcare over the past year. Nearly all of us come in contact with the healthcare system on an almost daily basis. Perhaps you're ill or you care for a loved one who is. If you're healthy and employed, you might not think about it, but your compensation involves some sort of complex deductions that impact your take-home pay and your coverage should you be in need of it. Maybe you're without insurance, and it haunts your subconscious knowing that you're one catastrophic event away from bankruptcy or worse. Whatever the circumstance, medical care in the United States is its own singular stress point that we experience differently than every other industrialized country in the world. Like I said, too much to bite off in a single episode. So the challenge is how exactly to begin. And in that spirit, there's no time like the present. Chapter 1. A Band-Aid on an Open Wound This law... This law that I'm about to sign finally delivers on a promise that Washington has made for decades to the American people. I got here as a 29-year-old kid. We were promising to make sure that Medicare would have the power to negotiate lower drug prices back then. Back then, prescription drug prices. But guess what? We're giving Medicare the power to negotiate those prices now on some drugs. This means seniors are going to pay less for the prescription drugs while we're changing circumstances for people in Medicare by putting a cap, a cap of a maximum of $2,000 a year on their prescription drug costs, no matter what the reason for that, those prescriptions are. That means if you're on Medicare, you'll never have to pay more than $2,000 a year, no matter how many prescriptions you have, whether it's for cancer or any other disease, no more than $2,000 a year. And you all know it because a lot of you come from families that need this. This is a godsend. This is a godsend. Let's be optimistic for a moment and take Uncle Joe at his word. The Inflation Reduction Act shores up some crucial gaps in the ACA. In a New York Times op-ed, Larry Levitt from the Kaiser Family Foundation called the medical provisions in the act, quote, the biggest health reform initiative since passage of the Affordable Care Act and the single biggest political loss the drug industry has sustained. Big Pharma is no longer invincible, which could embolden future efforts to expand the scope of drug pricing restraints, end quote. So I think that's a fair statement, if not a sadly painful one, considering that almost nothing has happened to improve coverage since the ACA. Caps on insulin as well as out-of-pocket charges for seniors and the ability for Medicare to negotiate drug prices at some point hit directly at some of the fatal flaws of the ACA, that placed many plans out of reach and left Medicare woefully inadequate for many seniors. But even Levitt acknowledges that, quote, as popular as the platform will be, its reach has limits. Drug pricing restraints will not apply immediately or to everyone, and drugs account for less than 10% of health spending, end quote. 
So we have to contextualize this, even if it pisses in the nation's cornflakes. Yes, these provisions will be a, quote, godsend, as Uncle Joe referred to them, to many seniors. And that's a really, really good thing. But on balance, because this bill is presented as somewhat of a capstone to Obamacare and the Democrats are doing a victory lap, there's a sense of finality to the whole thing. Like everything's just fixed. But it's not. In fact, these provisions, while certainly an improvement on the existing healthcare infrastructure, simply codify the nation's Rube Goldberg system of laws and agents who profit from a system designed to line the pockets of institutions. They are, dare I say, It's the worst acronym ever made up And we realize now it was a stupid thing to do It stands for pissing in the ocean to warm it up It's time for Pito Tweet this bill is an acknowledgement that the fight for universal health care is over as far as the Democrats are concerned. And that's a troubling realization. Both the Senate and the House voted entirely 100 percent along party lines, with King of Maine and Sanders of Vermont siding with the Democrats and Vice President Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. And I get it. This bill was really about salvaging as many pieces of Build Back Better that impacted climate change reversal as Joe Manchin would allow. And speaking of Joe Manchin, if any doubt remained as to whether or not this was his bill, witness the moment after President Biden affixes his signature to the bill. Biden reaches out across Senator Schumer to hand the pen to a surprised Manchin. A couple of ways to interpret this. One, Joe is a better politician than most give him credit for. Another is that it symbolizes an acquiescence of sorts to the old ways of doing business. This is D.C., we do things a certain way here, the good old boy way. Manchin and Schumer's respective staff hashed out the details in private, or so the story goes. Folks like Cinema were brought along with the promise that Wall Street would be protected. So would the insurance companies and the fossil fuel industry. And while I could certainly go on, there's someone with far more standing and experience who would do a much better job of explaining where all of this falls short. Buckle up for Bernie. Given that this is the last reconciliation bill that we will be considering this year, it is the only opportunity that we have to do something significant for the American people that requires only 50 votes and that cannot be filibustered. Does this bill make it easier for workers who want to join a union to be able to do so, or they continue to be attacked by their employers, making it hard to form a union? No, this bill does nothing to address that reality. Does this bill extend the $300 a month per child tax credit that was so important to millions of families last year? Does it address that issue? Something that every other major country on earth does. No, the bill does nothing to address the extraordinary healthcare crisis that we face. Is there anything in the currently written bill to expand Medicare to do what some 75, 80% of the American people think we should do, and that is expand Medicare to cover dental care for seniors, hearing aids, and eyeglasses? No. This bill doesn't touch that at all. Under this legislation, Medicare for the first time 
would be able to negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry to lower drug prices. That's the good news. Bad news is that we will not see the impact of these negotiated prices until 2026, four years from now. Why? Got me. I don't know. When it comes to reducing the price of prescription drugs under Medicare, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We could simply require Medicare to pay no more for prescription drugs than the VA pays. End of discussion. A rather simple solution. Mr. President, in terms of the Affordable Care Act, this legislation will extend subsidies for some 13 million Americans who have private health insurance plans as a result of the ACA over the next three years. Without this provision, millions of Americans would see their premiums skyrocket and some 3 million Americans could lose their health insurance altogether. This is a good provision. I support it. But let us not kid ourselves. The $64 billion cost of this provision will go directly into the pockets of private health insurance companies that made over $60 billion in profit last year and pay their CEOs exorbitant compensation packages. Bernie then spends the next 10 minutes eviscerating the giveaways to the fossil fuel industry and how poorly crafted some of the renewable energy incentives are. But in these statements, you can hear a dejected Bernie Sanders, still a seemingly lone voice in the progressive wilderness, almost coming to grips with the fact that this bill might not be the beginning of something special, but the last blown opportunity of his career. I'm sorry to be so fatalistic about this because there really are some things to celebrate. But when you dig just a little deeper, it feels like a Pyrrhic victory of sorts. And because it solves important pain points for a critical voting block of seniors and strengthens the positions of insurers, hospitals, drug companies, manufacturers, providers, and lobbyists, it feels like the book has been closed on universal health care. Again, for now. UNFTR is also sponsored by our unfucking overcaffeinated members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Brian, Awesome A., Ahsoke, and Asshole. Chapter 2. The Long Arm of Milton Friedman In the next chapter, we're going to talk about the giant forces that move the healthcare industry. It's important to understand that spending on healthcare is now 20% of our nation's GDP. There are several ways to parse GDP data, but nearly every method drives to the same conclusion when you tally it up. It's our biggest sector, and it makes a lot of people a lot of money. There was a time, perhaps a couple of occasions throughout history, when a move towards nationalized healthcare was more conceivable. When it was part of the Bull Moose platform under Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 as part of FDR's package of reforms prior to the war, under Truman just after FDR passed. It was LBJ that came the farthest with Medicare and Medicaid, but since then, it has steadily moved out of reach. Single-payer has always faced opposition. In the beginning, it was from rather unlikely places in hindsight. But over time, the forces have become almost insurmountable. Before we dig into just how big these forces are in the next chapter, let's have a philosophical discussion. As usual, the countervailing narrative to a single-payer approach is best illustrated by none other 
than Milton Friedman. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Friedman was prolific until the end, including a paper on healthcare published in 2001, just five years prior to his death. It's worth expending some energy on this because his unerring dedication to the free market is evident even in the sound logic of the paper that drives him to a most illogical conclusion. Let's start with some hardcore logic from Uncle Fucknugget's paper. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Uh, listen, Manny, we're going to have to slow down on the fuck Milton Friedman drops. We're going to be quoting him a bunch here. Okay. One more for good measure? Yeah, yeah, sure. Get it out of your system. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Here goes. Here are some pearls from our nemesis. Quote, no third party is involved when we shop at a supermarket. We pay the supermarket clerk directly. The same for gasoline for our car, clothes for our back, and so on down the line. Why, by contrast, are most medical payments made by third parties? The answer for the United States begins with the fact that medical care expenditures are exempt from the income tax if and only if medical care is provided by the employer. If an employee pays directly for the medical care, the expenditure comes out of the employee's after-tax income. If the employer pays for the employee's medical care, the expenditure is treated as a tax-deductible expense for the employer and is not included as part of the employee's income subject to income tax. That strong incentive explains why most consumers get their medical care through their employers or their spouses or their parents' employer. In the next place, the enactment of Medicare and Medicaid in 1965 made the government a third-party payer for persons and medical care covered by those measures. We are headed toward completely socialized medicine, and if we take indirect tax subsidies into account, we are already halfway there, end quote. Okay, so let's pause and reflect on just these basic suppositions for a moment. Listen, I'm not really prepared for this. I haven't sterilized my hands. You're not going to make this guy any sicker. <laughs> One thing Uncle Fartknocker was very good at was boiling things down to consumable examples that make sense in everyday life. So let's start with the correlation between services such as shopping for gasoline, clothes, or groceries. It's tempting to just let this pass because medical services can theoretically be boiled down to goods and services, but what this ignores is the variability of healthcare needs and diagnoses. You don't get a second opinion at a gas station, and shopping for clothes isn't a life-or-death decision. The clerk at the store is delivering a predetermined quantity of items at a price often set by bureaucratic institutions that Friedman so loves to hate. There's nothing free and floating about gas prices. The store clerk has no influence over where the cotton was harvested for a shirt, and food prices are negotiated well in advance on global markets unseen and hardly understood by the person at the checkout counter. No clerk went to four years of college, another four years of medical school, and two years of a residency to qualify them to make a crucial shopping decision that might alter the course of your life. So no, they're not the same. But he does make an interesting point about third parties, which we'll get to later. More to his point regarding tax deductions, this actually explains a great deal about the rise of third parties in determining costs and coverage of medical care in the United States. 
Now, we'll return to Milton in a moment, but to address this point, I actually want to turn to Paul Starr's Social Transformation of Medicine to explain what he calls, quote, the accommodation of insurance in America compared to the European model that developed simultaneously and very differently. Now, bear with me on this one. It's a long passage, but it eloquently describes how and why the two paths ultimately diverged. Quote, the original European model began with the industrial working class and emphasized income maintenance. From that base, it expanded in both its coverage of the population and its range of benefits. The original progressive proposals for compulsory health insurance had shared much of this orientation, except that the American progressives had a distinctive interest in reorganizing medical care on more efficient and rational lines. The defeat of that early conception meant that there was no prior institutional structure for health insurance when the middle class encountered its problems of paying for hospital costs during the 1920s and when the hospitals encountered problems meeting their expenses during the Depression. So instead of an insurance system founded originally to relieve the economic problems of workers, America developed an insurance system originally concerned with improving the access of middle-class patients to hospitals and of hospitals to middle-class patients. The progressive interest in group practice, capitation payment, and incentives for prevention was rejected, and an insurance system developed under the control of the hospitals and doctors that sought to buttress the existing forms of organization. This was the basis for the accommodation of private insurance." End quote. So, from inception, we can see a couple of different tensions. If we take Milton Friedman's view on the world... No, fuck Milton Friedman! Whoa, 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 what are you doing? My bad. Force of habit. Keep going, keep going. <clears throat> okay. As I was saying, if you take Friedman's view on it, no system should have developed. Because any barrier between patient and provider should just be eliminated. Depression or no depression, the market will work it out. And that's, well, that, I mean, that's one view. Their European model, more to the point, that was expressly rejected in America was to protect the patient. The American model was designed to protect the hospital. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. The idea being that if the provider is secure, then access to care is as well. So there are arguments to be made on both sides of this equation, and I do think it's helpful to understand where these ideas originally formulated. This one question, whether the patient or the provider is the foundation of the healthcare system, ultimately determined the trajectory of the entire system moving forward. We chose to build around the system itself rather than the patient. Now, let's go back to Uncle Dick Cheese's contention that government incentives in the American system favored the growth of private insurers, whether it was intentional or not. And on this, he is 100% right. Once again, here's Starr to clarify. Quote, the health insurance system was set up in a highly regressive fashion. First, because it was based on employment. Second, because of the practices of community and experience rating and third, because of the favorable tax treatment of private insurance. The Internal Revenue Code of 1954 confirmed that employers' contributions to health benefit plans were tax-exempt. Indirectly, this exemption constituted a massive subsidy to people who had private insurance policies. In leaving out millions of Americans, the insurance system actually worsened their position because of the inflationary effect that insurance had on the cost of medical care. End quote. 
So let's stay in this pivotal period for a bit to tease out some of the early detractors of a universal system in the US because they might surprise you. So we're talking about the 40s and the 50s, right? During and after the Second World War, very much in the grips and the immediate aftermath of the Great Depression, the beginning of the Red Scare and the precipice of revolutions in medicine from vaccines to medical devices. Prior to this period, healthcare was almost futile. Infection and disease worsened by the economic crisis of the Depression. Almost all research was privately funded by wealthy patricians. And as Star notes, quote, in the early 1900s, the budget of the Rockefeller Institute alone was many times larger than federal expenditures for medical research, end quote. It was understood that there were multiple therapeutic uses for penicillin, but access to it was also extremely limited. So it might have been a medical wonder, but if no one could get their hands on it, then it really didn't matter. So it was Roosevelt who set about supercharging the industry. Scientists, remember, were smuggled into the United States, basically, from Germany after the war. And Roosevelt knew that psychological and physical ailments brought on by the war would be a major concern. And so the money came rolling in. When the money keeps rolling in, you don't ask how. When the industry was coming of age, and before it was beset by professional lobbies and corporate interests... There were other forces at play that aligned against a nationalized health insurance system. Roosevelt was pretty much out of runway on domestic policies near the end of the war as the nation turned its attention to post-war economic concerns, and the Truman administration attempted to pick up the mantle of reform to continue the legacy with a national health care model, but he too ran into interference from the outset. As hard as Truman worked to codify a version of national coverage, the first line of defense was actually doctors. As Stephen Brill writes in America's Bitter Pill, quote, the AMA spent what in 1949 was an astounding $1.5 million to campaign against the plan, labeling it socialized medicine that would be the key to the arc of a socialist state, which would destroy doctors' independent relationships with their patients and lead to doctors becoming government employees, end quote. So there are a few factors at play here. First off, they were tapping into very real public fears surrounding socialism in the post-war era. It can't be overstated how popular a selling point this is, no matter how much sense socialized programs make. Americans have been so indoctrinated against any hint of socialism that it persists as a boogeyman to this day. Now, closer to home, for the doctors themselves, was the fact that they were making real money and they weren't about to have any terms dictated to them by a bunch of government bureaucrats. I want to be a doctor. This isn't a game to me. This isn't playtime. Remember, during the Great Depression and even prior to that, doctors weren't paid all that well. And in hard times, they were the last people on the list. So when private insurance through employer-sponsored programs coincided with a population boom and advances in medicine and outcomes, the profession grew rapidly. And it wasn't about to give back the gains it made in a very short period of time. The other roadblock for a universal coverage scheme in the United States was actually put up by unions. Sounds counterintuitive, but employer-sponsored healthcare coverage was a union invention, one of the greatest perks ever conceived, in fact. If the government suddenly offered competitive benefits to the entire population, a critical bargaining element that made union membership special would suddenly be nullified. So let's go back to America's Bitter Pill by author Stephen Brill, which we're going to pull more from next week. 
In it, he notes, quote, the reason the unions were against government-supplied health care had to do with a quiet decision made during World War II by Franklin Roosevelt's National War Labor Board, a panel he appointed to enforce wartime wage and price control. In 1943, the board ruled that fringe benefits, including health insurance, were not subject to wage controls, which prohibited an employer seeking to encourage workers to join or stay at his company from enticing them with higher pay. Under the board's ruling, an employer could lure workers by offering to pay for health insurance to be supplied by what would soon become a flood of insurance companies flocking into the new market. The decision motivated unions to oppose government intervention, end quote. So I know we all want to point the fingers at who's to blame today, and there's plenty of it to go around, believe me. But it's important to nail down our history and understand when the ball started rolling and who gave it the first push downhill. Rounding out our sponsors for this week, this episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pros, Stifler's Daddy 420, Jessica CS 90 Days of Rage, Souza, and Carrie M. Caskill. Chapter 3 Stakeholders and Cost Drivers. All right. So let's talk about who's to blame today. Because that was then and this is now. Why has this issue become so intractable? We know the talking points by heart from the progressive movement. We're the only industrialized nation in the world without universal health care. Health care is a right, not a privilege. We pay the most for health care with some of the worst outcomes among OECD countries. Insurance companies and big pharma are raking in billions of dollars in profits. Yep, you got them down. It's madness. Now, we've established that healthcare writ large comprises 20% of our nation's GDP. Another way to look at it is that there are a lot of people who depend on this industry to make a living. It's not all going into shareholder pockets, right? So let's talk about who exactly is at the table to try and understand who's actually negotiating how care is paid for and administered in this country. Medical device manufacturers. Labor and service unions. Insurance providers. Family doctors. Nurses. Surgeons. The Catholic Church. Drug companies. Law firms. Nonprofit hospitals. For profit hospitals. Plastic surgeons. Cosmetic surgeons. Wait, what's the difference? Keep going, we're on a roll. Anesthesiologists. Pharmacy benefit managers. Pharmacies. Ambulance drivers. Tanning bed manufacturers. Oh, come on. Vitamin and supplement manufacturers. And on and on and on. Seriously. This is a partial list, and for every category mentioned, there is a big-time lobby behind them. Yeah, I know it's a partial list, but it really feels like we're, we're missing a big one. Right? It's, it's right there, but I just can't put my finger on it. Oh, that's right. Patience. Attempts have been made to deliver what they call patient-centric care, especially in the ACA. For example, tying hospital reimbursements to outcomes clawbacks on payments if patients are readmitted for issues after being discharged. Some financial considerations, such as the ones in the Inflation Reduction Act, that attempt to ease the burden on certain vulnerable populations. But for the most part, discussions around reform revolve around ways to contain costs and increase access. In fact, those were the only guiding principles behind the deliberations surrounding Obamacare, which we'll touch on next week. So before we even get there... Let's drill into a few numbers to illustrate the sheer scope of financial incentives for private companies that are baked into our current system. 
Here are 12 companies, three major ones representing four distinct industries under the healthcare umbrella. Four companies and their annual profits for just fiscal year 2021 to give you an idea of just how much money is at stake in the current system. Medical devices. Hey, you did not go to medical school. And until you do, you will take a chill pill. Medtronic, manufacturer of an array of surgical products from diabetes and cardiovascular to urology and orthopedics, produced a net income of $5 billion last year. Abbott Labs, producer of consumer brands like Pedialyte and Similac and scores of professional diagnostic tools and medicines, threw off $7.6 billion in profit in 2021. And Stryker, manufacturer of everything from beds and PPE to surgical tools and medical implants, made a $3.4 billion profit. And Theranos. Ah, just kidding. For-profit hospitals. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. HCA Healthcare, based in Tennessee, has more than 200 hospitals and 2,000 care centers that produced a $7.7 billion profit in 2021. California's Kaiser Permanente Hospital System, one of the oldest in the country, threw off $8.1 billion last year. And Universal Health Services, headquartered in Pennsylvania, has over 89,000 employees and threw off a billion. Insurance companies. You switch carriers. Now you're telling me that I'm not fully covered, even though I got a policy that says I am. United Health Group posted $17 billion in profit for 2021. Humana posted $3 billion. And Anthem posted 6 And Big Pharma. I'm sorry we gave you a little something to relax you. It may have taken the tingle out of your genitals. Pfizer had a big year partly because of COVID, but it's a perennial monster that threw off a whopping $22 billion in profit in 2021. Merck made $7 billion last year. And AbbVie, maker of the wildly successful arthritis drug Humira, also had a banner year with $11.5 billion in profit. Total it all up, and that's $99 billion in profit. Hey, hang on a second. 99... 99 billion? You don't think. It's mine. All mine, I tell you. Seriously, that's $99 billion in profit split between 12 major healthcare companies representing big pharma, for-profit hospitals, health insurance, and medical devices. There are more than 2,000 brand-name pharmaceutical companies in the United States. 6,000 hospitals, 6,500 medical device companies, and over 1,000 health insurance companies. Thousands of companies, millions of employees, 20% of our GDP. So when you begin to digest the magnitude of the economic impact contained within this sector of the economy, the resistance makes a lot more sense. Chapter 4. Bring it home, Max. A lot of thoughts on this one. Some will clarify further next week and then in related episodes down the road. But I want to return to Milton Friedman first before we close the chapter on this week's show. Friedman concludes that a voucher system is the only way to go, to completely eliminate any friction between provider and patient. Medical savings accounts, to be specific. As he says, quote, medical savings accounts would voucherize Medicare and Medicaid, end quote. See, his theory is that if the government incentives like 
tax breaks disappear for employers and the government itself gets out of insurance with the exception of catastrophic care, then the market will just resolve itself. Friedman's vision once again delivers us back to the Industrial Revolution days when men were men and took charge of their own lives. That special time in our history when there were 60 million of us with a life expectancy of 48. But he goes there as well and credits, get this, quote, improvements in diet, housing, clothing, and so on, generated by greater affluence, better garbage collection and disposal, the provision of purer water, and other government public health measures, end quote. He credits these things for extending the lives of Americans. It's almost hard to tell if he's punking us or not. Everything he credits for extending our lives is the direct result of government programs and interventions into the so-called free market to restrain corporations from doing the most harm they possibly fucking can. Then he goes on to say that, quote, in terms of holding down cost, one-payer directly administered government systems such as exist in Canada and Great Britain have a real advantage over our mixed system. As the direct purchaser of all or nearly all medical services, they're in a monopoly position. So importantly, he sees this as anti-competitive and resulting in the suppression of physician wages. Of course, he doesn't mention that general practitioners, surgeons, nurses, and family doctors earn more on average in Canada than they do in the United States. Only the elite top surgical specialists in the U.S. earn so much more than in Canada or the U.K. that it skews the numbers. So no, countries with socialized medicine value the medical practice way more than we do. What they don't have are outrageously profitable companies that rob the system of capital that could otherwise go to saving consumers money. But as I've said before, when evaluating motives, Milton Friedman wasn't a bad person with ill intentions. In fact, he concludes his paper saying, quote, the first question asked of a patient entering a hospital might once again become what's wrong, not what's your insurance, end quote. But like almost everything else he tackles, Friedman has the right inputs and a well-intentioned output. But something happens in the middle when he looks at it all because he can only evaluate the data through a free market lens. And in so many key areas of life, the free market simply doesn't apply because there are human factors that intervene to infect the data. Okay, so he's been dead for 20 years. Other than your obsession with him, why bring him into the conversation, right? Because his concepts continue to carry a lot of weight. Take, for example, vouchering. That remains one of the most popular talking points among conservatives. John McCain ran on this premise. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell tried to overthrow Obamacare when they took over Congress under the belief that a voucher system would be better. Donald Trump even hinted at it, but as we know, he never had a repeal and replace plan because this shit is hard. The real truth in the Republican Party is that they are celebrating the healthcare wins of the Obama and Biden administrations just as much as the Democrats because their donors, their donors are all the same. When the Democrats blamed Kirsten Sinema for eliminating the carried interest tax loophole in the Inflation Reduction Act, it just laughed. She's a convenient foil, 
but no politician outside of the Progressive Caucus members who really, really get this shit understands the correlation between that particular provision and literally everything else in our economy. That surplus capital we talked about before, the $99 billion in profit last year from only 12 out of about 15,000 healthcare companies in the U.S. came from public companies. Companies that have grown so fucking big through unstoppable mergers and acquisitions. Corporations that control entire regions of the nation's healthcare. Drug companies that dangle the promise of extended life in the first three seconds of a television ad, followed by 50 seconds of disclaimers about how it can kill you. But only, only if you're lucky enough to have the insurance. Preventive care? Forget about it. Those big public companies that throw off massive profits aren't building care systems around patients. They're building systems around shareholders. And who are those shareholders? Unfuckers know. Officially. 90% of all stocks are owned by the top 10% of income earners in the United States. They tell you it's pensioners and old people, 401k participants and grandmas. They're lying. It's the richest 10%. So when economists talk about profits, they call it surplus capital. Money made beyond what labor was paid to create a product or service. Marxists call this wage theft. Modern capitalists call it a human right, and they have the Supreme Court decision to prove it. So which is it? Well, the answer, in my opinion, comes from unfucker Gene S.'s opening query. Isn't it immoral to make a profit off of sick people? That very simple query has a very straightforward answer. Yes, it is immoral. And if we start with this premise, it changes every input, every data point, every next question. From beginning to end, we built a system to care for the top 10% of the nation. The Inflation Reduction Act adds more nails to the barn door during a hurricane. The answers will always be wrong if the question is, here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, unfuckers, welcome into post-show musings. Hope you like the episode. Tease us up for next week, and I think level sets for a bunch of future episodes. Let's start off with book love first. The first one is America's Bitter Pill by Stephen Brill. Now, we're going to talk more about this book next week, especially when we talk about the ACA. But what I loved about it, I actually felt the same way reading that book as I did when I read The New New Deal by Michael Grunwald. They're both unbelievably painstaking looks at a process that most people don't understand. So Brill examines the creation of the ACA and places a lot of it in historical context, but he literally goes almost day by day, week by week through the process of getting that done, just in the way that Grunwald had gone through the Stimulus Act under Obama, day by day, 
week by week, all the players, all the characters, and what was at stake at the time, and then put it in historical context. Really good stuff. So we'll talk about that more later. And then there's The Social Transformation of American Medicine by Paul Starr. I have to say, I didn't read the entire book. I read the sections that were more appropriate to what we're talking about now because it's literally an entire history of medicine and how it develops throughout the country. It is a staggering, I mean a staggering work. I'm in complete awe of this book, and it has been updated since the original version, so it contains a lot of uh, nuance right up until I think it was about 2015 or 2016 in the version that I have, but holy fuck, what a book. Just amazing. And uh, yeah, then my professional jealousy pod love for this week is the Congressional Dish, where episode 255 covers PBMs and pharmacy benefit managers. 99, I can't tell you how fucking pissed I was when I opened that up. You, have you seen that folder in my in my drive? Mm-hmm. That PBM folder for fucking ever? Yeah. God. And it was such a good episode. She's so talented. She really is an amazing, an amazing person. Well, you can look at it as an opportunity for collaboration rather than okay. wanting her dead, like you said, secretly off. Wow. What? That's insane. That's just what you Why said. Why would you say that? Because you said it. I did not. He didn't. Take it back. I take I take it back. God. I have a podcast. You have a different podcast than Unfucking the Republic? What is it? Uh, Under what name? It's called Congressional Dish. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's a podcast. I think I've mentioned it a few times called Sawbones. And their subheading is a marital tour through misguided medicine. And it's a a husband and wife. Uh, The wife is a doctor. And they just talk about like different things in medical history. Less, you know, less serious than this about the care and all this, you know, but they do deep dives into, you know, they did some around abortion when everything was and is happening. But yeah, it's just if you like learning about the healthcare industry and in a, a sillier way than what we do, but also can be dark, hmm. check check out Sawbones. Yeah, it's named Sawbones. I yeah. imagine it gets dark at some point, right? It's on uh, Maximum Fun. What, what does that mean? It's a network. It is? Yeah, it's a completely listener-funded network. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah, so check that out. It's maximum fun. Oh, yeah, that's okay. you. Um, all right, so I know this is going to sound insecure, as it always does when I ask this of unfuckers, but there's a, <laughs> there's a... It, it's less of a how did I do and more of a, okay, so what's next? Because I have ideas for next week, but we need to start kind of honing in on certain themes and ideas because if you take a listen to all of the inspirations that we added uh, in the top of the show from listeners and that was just a sampling of the I would say the more lengthy emails that we received we I think just scratched the surface again level setting creating the language kind of understanding this it, to me this is more of a philosophical journey of why can't we have nice things in this country versus other industrialized nations that develop differently so out of this philosophical journey, there's a few touch points like the gender disparity, the racial disparity in treatment and care, the difference between uh, how rural care systems, care centers, hospital systems developed in this country versus the urban centers, how the insurance companies have, have really effectively changed the game with what they decide to pay for, what they don't decide to pay for, what's on label, what's off label. I mean, there's so many places that we can go next. If this episode inspired direct questions, like singular questions where you're like, okay, but that's all well and good, Max, but here's the one fucking thing that I don't get. I'd love to hear some feedback on that so that it can kind of seed 
some ideas and, and research for future episodes. I feel like we can touch on, is universal health care just, is it dead in the water? How do we go from here based on what we have? Yeah, that, to me, that's my biggest takeaway from doing this because I, I went at it from a, such a, a place of genuine curiosity. Yes, healthcare is something that I'm aware of, something that I've had. It's something that I'm responsible for as an employer in our little organization. It's something that I witnessed the brutality of looking at my my mother's final year and what she had to go through and what my dad had to go through to even reconcile all of the the bills and the and the charges and the types of care and the levels of care and the fighting with the insurance I mean it's a it's a fucking disaster looking at the at, at the expense of end of life care and how brutal that is I certainly get that as another tributary and all of that in my mind was proof of the need for a universal healthcare system where things were more streamlined, more like the Canadian system. But again, not just replicating a foreign system like Canadian or UK or even maybe a more Scandinavian approach or the German approach, but picking off the best of those things and incorporating them into a new, fully realized model in the United States. So I was going at it from a genuinely curious perspective. What I came away with, I think, is really reflected in the tone that you can hear in Bernie's words. Sort of this like resignation, like I'm voting for this piece of shit because it's doing a handful of things that we absolutely need, but it's wrapped in a bad fucking premise that, so you didn't pose it as a question, but it's sort of like, you know, ruminating on, you know, is this act, are we, did we actually just see the end of the battle for universal healthcare? In a lot of ways, I that's what I walked away with from this episode. That's how I that kind of felt. I think the broader, maybe more scarier thing about all of this is that this was just a top-level look at the healthcare system, not even focusing on different subsections. Like, we could do an entire unfucking of the mental health system. And oh, yeah. We could do an entire unfucking of dental care and, like, all of these things that... I mean, vision and dental are not even necessarily included in health insurance. They're add-ons. So it's like, if you don't have the money, you just can't take care of your teeth, which are really fundamental to your entire life's health. So, yeah, that that's that's something I'd be interested in to, in exploring. Like, there were a lot. Time. There was a lot more notes in both Brill's book and Star's book about the path of mental health care in this country, and we've talked before about how. If we're going to do that, which we are, it's probably going to be focus on that pivotal moment during the Reagan era where he just decided to stop funding that and stop having institutionalized care because he was right in that it wasn't working and it was very punitive. It treated people in need of psychological care as criminals. Mm -hmm. But then we basically criminalized their entire existence by throwing them out on the street. So nobody's ever had a really good answer to it. The one thing that I was surprised about was the sensitivity to it after the war. So I did pick up a little piece on that and include that here because there was an awareness that we were bringing people back home once again, just like we saw in World War One, that we're going to be really fucked up for a generation, that we're going to have some serious consequences to it. Interesting that it stemmed from war, of course. But however, whatever the entry point was, there was some deliberation around how we were going to cultivate organized care around psychological and mental health. 
but then it went right off the rails right afterwards. I mean, just, and what special interest influenced that and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, you're right. There's just so fucking much to unpack. Yeah. And then in terms of big pharma, I mean, I think we talked about it, but I might've got it out of something about like the Mark Cuban, how he's trying to make drugs more accessible price-wise, things like that. I mean, there's just so many little offshoots now. Yeah, I mean, in the ACA, and I think we'll cover this next week, so the Republicans had a poison pill that they introduced at the 11th hour to kill the ACA to include the ability to bring drugs from Canada, which sounds so counterintuitive, but it was so fucking smart because all the Democrats that were on the dole from the insurance companies suddenly lost their support. Mm -hmm. So the Democrats had to basically say we can't allow that to happen even though we know it's the right thing because all of the insurance companies that came to the table to fix the i mean it's it was so it's a mitch mcconnell device it was so fucking evil in its conception but that was their poison pill harry reed made the decision just not to introduce it so that the democrats didn't have to because he was in charge at the senate at the time so the democrats didn't have to look at it because he didn't introduce the bill. I mean, some incredible power dynamics behind it. But it just shows you how they use the patient, once again, as the fucking pawn in the entire system to get to where they need to be to ultimately protect the for-profit companies in this country. That's so fucked up. So fucked up. And then there's also like the Martin Shkreli offshoot of the way people are, you know, the way drugs can be controlled. Sure. I tried to watch the Farmer Bro documentary, but it's bad. Don't watch it. Oh, is it? Like quality was just, yeah. just bad. They interview what's his face, and that's when I turn it off. Milo. Oh, Yiannopoulos? I'm pretty sure it was like his Chiron said, like alt right influencer or something. Oh my God. And I said, Excuse me? And then I said, I'm going to turn this off. And I looked at the reviews, and it was all like one star. But I did, at the beginning, there was interesting information about how they're allowed, like why they're allowed to do raise the prices and all that stuff. So maybe like the first five minutes. <laughs> but. So you mentioned something about big pharma, though. Here's here's an area that I struggle, and then we'll 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 close this out on fuckers. But so I struggle with big pharma, and and I I noted some of the tension in the books and the the resources that I read as well, because I was very much when my kids were born, I very much moved into the naturopath mindset for raising the kids for a number of different reasons have wavered on that over the years, not entirely, but for the, just philosophically, it's something that I felt more aligned with as a young parent so many, many, many years ago. And so Big Pharma to me represented more, uh, more evil than just price gouging. It was actually what they were pushing into our systems. Not to say that I was an anti-vaxxer, not to say that I was against medications or anything like that, but the over-medication of children and the rampant over-medication of seniors and just prescribing drugs because the doctor happened to get a lot of goodies and dinners and and actually like benefits and trips and travel and all that shit during that era from pharmaceutical reps and the, the only reason I knew that is because some of my friends are pharmaceutical reps and they told me how they fucking did it and these doctors were prescribing stuff they could they didn't even know if they could stand behind and we saw what happened with the opioid epidemic and we saw what happens with the over medication of the population here and then also at the same time being able to recognize all the way back to fucking penicillin and then to the polio vaccine and then and then and then and then and then the benefit of quality drugs and the necessity for them now particularly in the mental health space in the physical space as you get into senior care now that people's lives are being extended all that kind of stuff 
the the morality of big pharma is fucking fascinating to me and it's something that i have wrestled with as a father i mean now for as long as i've been a dad not something i thought about prior to having kids but for as long as i've been a dad and i find that to be a fascinating corollary it definitely is but i think you need to like the royal you we have to divorce what the medicines do from the people who are peddling them because what you're describing is how we got here in COVID times to people not trusting the government and big pharma and whatever that type of thinking and I'm not saying you're wrong obviously it's it's your opinion and yeah that type of like conspiratorial they're only doing this because they're getting paid it's bad <laughs> it, it breeds anti-vaxxers it breeds it breeds this whole world and you know, it also bred the opioid epidemic. Of as course, well. yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not at all saying they're innocent. But I just mean when we go down that line of thinking, from that perspective, like we need to blame the money people, not the doctors, and and vice versa. And additionally, the you know the naturopath, natural industry is probably uh, at this point more perverted than big pharma. I'm pretty confident in saying that. It's a disgusting industry that preys on people. That preys on people who want solutions you know there are plenty of natural things that work you know like vitamin c will help boost your immunity like yeah it's not going to cure covid but it doesn't mean that you should be drinking like fucking chlorophyll or whatever they're shilling on tiktok but that's i mean that's a whole different story that's a whole nother side that i could i have a whole cabinet of chlorophyll that my my daughter ordered from oh my TikTok. God. I said, what are you doing it's not it doesn't do anything and it looks disgusting though. yeah it's like fucking weird drops you put in this it's just that's the problem is that you yeah. people watch and you know young impressionable people i know plenty of people i'm not the only reason i'm maybe can see through it is because i have a a strong fucking hatred and i know it's 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 problematic and it maybe makes me be a little more closed-minded in that way when you know i my sister 101 will not that she's like an anti-vaxxer by any measure but she'll she likes more like natural medicine she'll read about it and i just always go like well you're gonna be an anti-vaxxer next and it pisses her off every fucking time but i'm just teasing her but like i'm so allergic to it because i don't even know why i don't know why i fucking hate it so much but it's such a disgusting industry i, I think i hate it more than big pharma and so uh, and so you're you're looking at a and i hear you uh, believe me you're looking at a one-to-one comparison of natural treatments where somebody proclaims on the so-called naturopath side that no 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 don't take that drug take this fucking supplement and this cocktail of drinks and this thing what i'm more looking at is again as as a new parent years ago how much conventional western medicine was shoved down our throats without any sort of knowledge or understanding like really basic shit what do you do when your kid gets a fever for the first fucking time right Antibiotics were just, that was just it. That was the go-to. And and shoving antibiotics down a, like a newborn's throat. Like, was that really the best way to go about it? And those are the questions I started asking as a new parent. And uh, we weren't taking to the internet like we would today. The mm-hmm. debate wasn't happening in some fucking chat room. And there was no, it was less of a conspiratorial angle to it and more of a, here's this mom group on Facebook that introduced you to this natural practitioner who said, hey, just... Don't worry about it, but whatever you do, don't make sure your kid isn't on antibiotics 17 times in their first year of life because that's going to produce problems down the road. So, you know, that type of like talk, right? It's less about the direct one-to-one, no, don't take this, take this, and more about the let the bodies develop naturally and there are better protocols 
with a, a different through a different lens and you don't always have to cure things with a pill right yeah no that's totally fair and you know this is this is a tangent from you know the original episode but we're here so like a facebook group where you're getting medical information that is actually like a terrible rabbit hole into getting into these like weird places. That's not what I said. I'm saying like a Facebook group of moms that were like, hey, my kid's sick again for the third time. Oh, my God. Hey, I'm, I'm so tired of this doctor. Does anybody have a recommendation? Yeah. Go see this natural Asking person. Asking for doctors stuff, is right? fine. But right. like I, you know, again, trading medical advice with strangers is also and I'm not saying you were doing that. I'm just speaking generally. But I do think it's also like it's just situationally. You can have a really bad experience with a with a traditional doctor or not like my doctor so i'm older than your kids so the doctor i was seeing was practicing before they were born Mm -hmm. and my doctor was he was just a normal pediatrician we've i saw him from birth till i was like 12 and it was antibiotics were always the absolute last it was always like bring it in we'll do a strep test if it's strep give them that you have to if it's a sore throat wait it out and you know, never prescribe stuff. And he wasn't a natural doctor by any measure. He was a, pe- a pediatrician. So it's like, you know, that one in that one, you know, where you maybe had a bad experience colored your entire worldview of that. And it's just, I mean, it's just interesting how it maybe it just speaks to the broader the broader healthcare industry, the education of, of some of our doctors, where they're where they're getting educated, how they're mm-hmm. practicing, like the, the regulations, the oversight. So, I mean, there is no answer there. But I saw it on the other side, by the way, with 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 my mother's care, where there were natural doctors that were prescribing things that would 100 percent worsen the type of cancer that she had because they weren't fucking oncologists. And. We walked down that route, too, and it was a very dangerous path, and it was a very emotionally scarring path for everybody involved as well. So, again, that's why I always err on the side of you got to think about this stuff. You have to dissect. You have to go back to the roots of the stuff and ask for what were the incentives, who was incentivized along the way, and what question are we trying to answer? What are we trying to cure? And so in so many ways, I feel like the pharmaceutical industry almost can't get a fair deliberation in the modern era specifically because it has been so sensationalized now and uh, and politicized and and all of that, right, in in the modern internet era. And it's just, so it'll be a fascinating take if we decide to go down that road as well. Yeah, because, you know, when you talk to people who might be anti-vax, you say like, well, are you, what medicines are you taking? And they're like, oh, cholesterol. And I'm like, well, right. what? What's in that? Yeah, and yeah. also like, you, like eating Cheerios isn't going to save your fucking heart. Like, th- this is what you need. I'm not like a big pharma shill, but as somebody who takes like antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines, like I come from it from a very specific lens because I'm dependent, not in an addiction way, you know, I'm not addicted where my body craves it, but like I know I'm my better self when I'm on my antidepressants because I can function. Tom Cruise would disagree. And here's why. Don't bring up Scientologists. It's like you're <laughs> I know just it's another ask, trigger. You're for you. asking me. First, we're gonna go off on natural medicine, and now a cult. Yeah, my mom sent me an Instagram video of like a fucking naturopath doctor, and he was like, "Is your thyroid making you depressed?" And I was like, "I'm not listening to this man. I'm sorry. I don't believe I, my thyroid is fine. It's not making me depressed. The state of the world is making me depressed." Well, there's that too. So yeah, just um, yeah. you know, my triggers. Just don't go there. You know, don't. I, You're asking uh, for it. I am asking for it. Yeah. I am asking for it. <laughs> I also love having the discussions, and I always love talking about this stuff with you. And I love hearing from unfuckers, and, and I want to thank the the four that we called out in the beginning of the show, but there were dozens more, literally, that just, 
had sent suggestions in through social media, through email, uh, through forms on the site. Just said a good old fashioned on fucking the healthcare system would be great because I have so many questions or I'm in it. We've actually received a lot of personal stories of, you know, very tragic stories of people trying to navigate through this. And we have listeners right now that are trying to navigate through a very complex and, and emotional healthcare system. So this is for them as well. It's for all of us because it is a universal thing that must be contemplated. Your health is yeah. inescapable and is we an inescapable part right, of our reality. I have one final thought, maybe a way to approach probably not the next episode, but a future healthcare episode, thinking about how I think I can't remember if we were actually just talking about this or I was listening to another podcast, but about how when you speak to somebody no matter what side of the aisle they're on about well wouldn't it be great if we were able to go to doctors and not be in debt like when we talk about mm. the the not the policies when we talk about the issues mm -hmm. not who's framing them not who they're coming from not who's sponsoring it so like purely talking about wouldn't it be great if our elderly had better care so similar how you do like when we're when we're talking to a Trump a Trump person or about immigration so maybe we do an episode where we talk about just the core issues and sort of dissolve any of the names at least to like a like a later section cuz that could be really you know think about someone you know who is conservative who maybe like you know they they have an elderly parent or whatever listening to an episode about like wouldn't this make your life better without being like well this democrat proposed you know bernie sanders because as soon as they hear bernie sanders they're turning off mm -hmm. but if it just yep. said wouldn't it be great if you could get treatment for your illness period you know what's so funny about that is so like the conservative angle frank luntz is a is a really important figure in the last i would say 40 years because he was the one that came up with the contract for america with gingrich he was the one that came up with all the talking points against the affordable care act when the affordable care act was actually modeled on a conservative plan that once previously supported under you know the heritage foundation right what's so interesting is that if you talk to a conservative I, and, and i'm this is a this is a generalization so i apologize for that but when you hear debates with conservatives on one side, you don't hear them necessarily espousing, yeah, we should have a voucher system and here's how it should work. They're not running a, a Milton Friedman playbook for somebody who literally spent his entire life and career thinking about ways to create the perfect touchless free market system, right? What they do know to say is, I want government out of my health care. I don't want socialized medicine. And what else? What, what are the other conservative talking points? There's only a handful of them, right? My body, my choice, but not in the way that we think. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So those talking points are so much more effective and also have nothing to fucking do with exactly what you're driving at, which is, well, what, wait, what are, what are the questions we're trying to answer here? Where are we trying to drive to? And... Who are we trying to take care of here? None of those talking points actually answer those seminal questions. So I think that's a really important thing you bring up. Yeah. The the, the line about that Milton Friedman said, which is shocking, though, like, why are you here or what hurts versus what's your insurance? Like, that's really striking and very powerful from such a fucking douchebag. But it's so yeah. true. You yeah. walk and think about going to urgent care, which isn't urgent at all. <laughs> it's like the DMV of emergency rooms right. where you have to fill out fucking 30 forms, mm -hmm. scan your palm print, do all this shit. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I went to urgent care once when I had the flu and I'm sitting in a waiting room 
actively sick, like basically <laughs> tripping out of my mind because I have 103 fever. And I'm like, that's the that's terrible service. It's terrible care. That's not care. No, they don't and they don't care. And then and then I got the flu test or whatever they call it, and I it was positive, and I cried because I felt sick. And the doctor said, "What are you crying for? Isn't that so mean?" Where was this urgent care? Don't say it out loud. Tell me afterwards. <laughs> well, so many avenues. So many avenues, and and as usual, loving every one of them. Loving the unfuckers and appreciate you all for hanging with us and, and writing in for our vacation episodes and, and after our last show notes. A lot of good stuff coming up, including a phone a friend this week that I think everybody's really going to dig. Yay. Yay. That sounded, I sounded dejected, but I didn't mean it. It's just been a long, you know, it a is, lot of heavy information. We've been in the studio for a long time today, mm-hmm. I'll say that. As always... Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. And the best actor Oscar goes to Manny Faces. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Hey, Anne, are you still a nurse or did they fire you because you slept with all the doctors? Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern, who you now know a lot better than you did. (laughs) Right? Love that Tom McGovern. Check them out at TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Costs and distributed by Outcomes. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Hey, become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Or just go to UNFTR.com and click on the membership links and find out all the things that you need to know about interacting with us and supporting us and doing all that stuff, including getting some native roasted coffee at our coffee shop, buying some books at our bookshop, or checking out the essays that we produce that the shows are based on on Substack. You can go to UNFTR.substack.com to find all of them. And remember, when you sign up there, it's fucking free. You're going to get everything for free because we never charge for content. That's not us. That's not unfucking the Republic. We don't want to just unfuck the Republic for people that pay us. We want to unfuck the Republic for fucking everybody. That's the whole goddamn point of this thing, right? I mean, who would we be if we just started charging people for content that you desperately fucking need? And if we were charging for content, what would that content say that other people that didn't pay us would need to, like, what would it be saying? Right? What would we do? What would we be behind the wall? What is everybody putting behind their fucking paywalls that's so goddamn important that people can't access it for free? That's what I wondered aloud. That's what I'll close on today. Have a great week, unfuckers. I'm scared. Three. The politicization. The politi- politicization. 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 Three. The politics of healthcare.